this episode is going to be called before we get to the <laughs> you don't need to have a criminal trial no. of witnesses or anything to just say this is how it came into the country he has the record and it was for a completely innocent pur uh, purpose what a what a what a funny situation we're in but impeachment says you can't wait necessarily five years before getting rid of someone who is guilty of serious misconduct or is no longer capable of being president is is this living in willful ignorance when the country is crumbling better than actually reckoning with the true state of the ANC I like our constitution a little bit more than, than you do I like it a lot right now the Caesar and Walter Welsh Experience Podcast Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. As we are on the road to 35,000 subscribers, who better to join us for an in-depth conversation on all that's happening around President Cyril Ramaphosa's situation than journalist, journalist, broadcaster, public intellectual? It's a good question. It's a good question. I think yeah. journalist is like the word lawyer. Yeah. Do you use it as a all encompassing noun for everyone in the industry? Yeah. Or do you think you must be a reporter to qualify to be a journalist? Yeah. yeah. So I'm never sure. I think broadcast is probably the safest. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I actually also don't like the, the label because I feel like what we do is kind of different to Yeah. It, to yeah. Reporting. Absolutely. But Eusebius uh Eusebius McKaiser. Thank you so much for joining us. It's only a pleasure. I just hope that this conversation is not irrelevant by the time folks are viewing it. Indeed, we shall make sure because we don't know whether the president is going to resign, whether he will have resigned by the time people are watching this, or whether he won't have. But do you think he should? I think he should. And I was pleasantly surprised by your definitive judgment that he should resign and your argument for it in the Mail and Guardian because I think we shy away from clarity in our commentary and we like being discursive and to do which as a trained debater I hate unless the situation demands it we do that sort of on the one hand on the other hand type of approach to discourse mm. but if there is a clear case for why someone should fall on their sword, I don't think it gets much clearer than this. And the only reason why I even had a grammatical pause is that I was going to give you the cop-out answer, which I think in this case would also be okay, which is to say a convincing case for resignation can be made. Mm. Um, and I suppose the only reason I, I might have framed it like that is because, as no doubt we're going to discuss, a question can be asked, should he take into account mm. what would happen if he resigns? And if we think that might lead, in terms of consequences, to a worse scenario than the status quo, mm. how should that factor into him considering whether to resign or not? It's a really interesting point. Um, I actually cannot wait for this conversation, by the way, because I've been also just wanting to find like extended commentary and reflection and analysis on this moment 
and it feels like everything is just so quick and mm. we're not delving deeply into all that this represents and, mm. and the first thing you say there is that we're set up <coughs> your some philosophical terms that people say you should never use on media just came to mind <laughs> between this deontological versus consequentialist logic right yeah but i trust my audience yes right? and effectively there's a question of principle and whether we say well this is so bad that no matter what the consequences are we have to set a precedent and we have to stand by principle here yes and then there's a question of what will the consequences be so okay yes there's a principle but what if the nation plunges into crisis or whatever and it's interesting to watch those two discourses play out um, in the way that this resignation mm. is being spoken about i think that's very true and i think it's actually great that we just deep dive into that immediately um, and and it plays out in the public space in all sorts of ways a doctor friend of mine was saying on my facebook page last night yeah i kind of get you there's a case for him to resign but you know what better the devil you know mm. and i was very angry with him and i said no ismail no yeah and i had in mind a conversation you and i had earlier in the day on whatsapp that one of the bad things that will happen if he does not resign is that you set a certain precedent that is not a good precedent to set from a democratic theory point of view mm. i.e that when the person that is entrusted to be the most important role model of the commitment to rule of law and constitutional supremacy is found wanting and their action and inaction is not consistent with a deep commitment to constitutionalism mm. then if they are kept on in that role or do not recognize that it's important to cliff themselves politically then in future when you have someone who is less likable more destructive then you can't demand their resignation because you've set a precedent where apparently it's okay to be found wanting on the law Absolutely. and on ethical principles and so there you've got a case for a combination of the two because mm -hmm. on the one hand you're saying mm -hmm. no as a matter of principle respect the foundations of democracy and constitutionalism so you should resign but actually also you know beyond undergraduate distinctions mm -hmm. It's not a choice between principle and consequences because you can also say the consequences down the line will be poor for the country mm. if you don't show a consistent commitment to principle Absolutely. and i think people miss that and they miss it for another reason that we can immediately throw into the mix which is if your faith is in trouble you lower your standards mm. i keep saying to people as a exercise ask yourself how would you feel about the preliminary findings even though they label preliminary which we'll come back to yeah. as if that means not serious which isn't the case mm. but what, how would you feel if this was former president jacob zuma the same ismail and many other people like him would say the least this guy can do is to resign yeah. that's not the response you get in relation to president Sol ramaphosa because he benefits from a certain kind of privilege and we often talk about white privilege we talk about male privilege but privilege comes in many forms and one of the privileges that president ramaphosa enjoys is what i call likability privilege and so i think the way we reason about how we should respond to this panel is for some people also motivated by the fact that they quite they like this guy mm, mm, mm. that's so true and and 
I think what you say is is really important because there's there's basically a deeper debate going on right now about the consequences for the country and the, and the consequences are not just limited to the short-term consequences mm. as you say I think a lot of people who are on the side that well let's just keep him on are looking at the short-term consequences mm. Mm. the rand may depreciate for what will dd do exactly <laughs> dd may become president but then there's the question of what are the long-term consequences of setting this precedent what are the consequences that stretch into the decades or many many presidencies in advance and for me that case seems much stronger or transcends the short-term pain i'm even I'm, I'm prepared and i think it's probably disingenuous to say there won't be negative short-term consequences for sure yeah. um, there may well be yeah but the question is are we going to privilege short-term stability over setting a very dangerous long-term precedent mm. that presidents can do things which seem impeachable but if we like them mm. then they can basically do whatever they See, want. See, so I think that's right. I think we also need to take one step back, right? Because there, there's overlapping shared background stuff in this conversation that I think not everyone... I mean, I think a lot of your viewers would share it, but we've got to make, make it explicit for the dispassionate <laughs> sure. viewer that, that may not be sure whether assumptions in, 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 in our conversation so far are true or not. Mm. So let, let's lift them to the surface. The truth of the matter is that South Africa currently is in a massive crisis under the leadership of President Sir Ramaphosa. So when we talk about short-term pain, mm. we must not pretend as if the status quo is painless. Yes. Which is why a book, even a book such as Jacques Poe's latest book, is critically important. And as I said in my review of that book, the least interesting part is the excerpts around the EFF and the titillating stuff about them having parties, etc. Sure. The part of that book for me that is the most interesting, which is everything that comes before the EFF, which only happens at three, page 350, mm. is that he reminds us how President Sul Ramaphosa has kept the president's keepers. Yeah. And in that sense, we mean President Jacob Zuma's keepers. Mm. So instead of showing, for example, that he has the leadership metal to get rid of people who are corrupt, who have been found wanting, like Arthur Fraser, yeah. or an intelligence minister like Zia Bonga, um, you find that suddenly they become ambassadors or they become a DG in correctional services or they get rearranged within the NPA, within the Hawks, within the SAPs. And lo and behold, if you look into the details, you will find some dodgy former cop is still dodgy in Etequini and his entire family has overnight, and I, I couldn't believe these are real examples, yeah. has suddenly been employed as lieutenants, as generals, what, 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 and they're actually just sitting at home and getting passive income from the state. Yeah. Right? And on top of that, as you know, we're in a situation where the economy is not growing. Millions of black South Africans don't have a stake in either the democracy or in the economy. And you have a situation where under President Ramaphosa's watch, you've got the uprisings that happened last year in Gauteng and in KZN. And there's no intelligence capacity because he never showed the political leadership to be able to turn around the NPA, the Hawks, the SEPs, crime intelligence, and that's quite apart from the economic clusters, that is a disaster. Mm -hmm. For President Sula Ramaphosa, becoming president was a bucket list item, but he's actually been at best mediocre, and at worst he's been implicated first as deputy president, saying nothing, 
while a lot of state capture happened under his watch. And then as president, he hasn't shown definitive leadership, even in this moment is, is, uh, is undecided. Now, the reason why I am summarizing that is just mm. to remind the person that has been living on another planet or who is so caught in the grip of Ramaphoria leftover sentiment that when we talk about short-term gain, you, pain, you and I, mm. we mustn't pretend as if two days ago, South Africa was a stable country. We've had the politicization of the criminal justice system, at best technical incompetence. Mm. We've got assassinations inside the SEPs. We've got the cliffing of good career cops, where they'd be IPED, the head of crime intelligence, our country's most important expert on gangs, have been conveniently sidelined, um, Jeremy Veary. And so you can step up, stack up the details of leadership incompetence under Cyril Ramaphosa. And so when someone says, well, you know what, money was just stolen from the guy's farm, let's not be disproportionate in what we think the punishment ought to be for not even him doing something wrong, but something wrong that was done to him. That is empirically a false yeah. description of the presidency of Mr. Ramaphosa. And if someone were to write the Ramaphosa years and really do an analytical job of describing and then assessing what he was like as president, even before Arthur Fraser went to the SAPS, mm. I think he comes out looking quite mediocre. And, and the reason I wanted to mention that is that when people do up this kind of weighing, mm. oh my God, what would life be under Didi? Mm. Please be mindful of the fact that life under Ramaphosa is terrible. Mm. Okay, let's end it. We're done. <laughs> We're done. Like, that is but such... people romanticize it. No, He's is, the smiling yeah, president. I, I'm, I'm, I've, been, I've been waiting for someone to articulate that, you know, um, because it feels like that view is, is so missing from the current moment, and maybe because mm. we don't have time to talk about it. Mm. But, you know, even beyond the failures to uproot corruption, we haven't even gotten to governance and just mm. service delivery. And, and mm. can anyone look around and say there's been some massive upsurge in governmental mm. delivery? Mm. If anything, it's probably gone backwards. Yeah. Economic indicators, unemployment, inequality, poverty, racialized, gendered, gender-based violence. Mm. So beyond Ramaphosa's immediate presidential decisions, in terms of the state of, I haven't even mentioned the worst rolling blackouts in the history Absolutely. of the country, right? So, mm. I mean, it, it actually, we, the premise actually does need to be questioned. Like, what, what worst thing yeah. are we really talking about here? And I guess the answer to that question would be, there's going to be looting, quote unquote. There's going to be this new state capture, right? And I think that's true. I mean, I, I think there's a danger of that. I have two responses and then, you know, we'll, we'll open it back up to you. Number one, let's look at corruption again. Has yeah. it magically disappeared? Have senior ANC leaders implicated in corruption? Which leaders that are not currently in power will be in power? Yeah. Mabuza's already <laughs> deputy president. Like, so, Absolutely. So you're fine with him being deputy but not president. Yeah. Um, yeah, precisely. So, so which? So tell us exactly 
what kind of different corruption on a, on a different scale we will see yeah. that is better than what we have now. Um, and, and then also tell us exactly how like service delivery or economic indicators would be much worse. Maybe, yeah. maybe there is a case, but I'm not sure people, people have just created fear and said there's going to be this terrible, yeah. what, what is the specific um, content of that terrible future without the mm. president? I think that's very important, and I, I, I don't want to put it in those terms, but I think you're right to go there, you know, which is to ask the, as one would normally do colloquially, how much worse can it get question. Mm-hmm. Now, sure, it can get much more, much more worse, mm-hmm. but it is important to be sober in, in not doing the, the opposite error, which is to say, forget to accurately describe the status quo. Mm-hmm. And the status quo is horrible in its detail. I'm embarrassed as a political animal when I read Jacques Poe's book because even though I know how structurally unjust our country is mm. you kind of forget to remember the minutiae until someone who's a details person more than a big pictures person says to you let me drag you back down into the footnotes of the state capture report mm. and then you realize like actually this is worse than you think it is so the average person who is irate would call into a talk radio station today mm. and bemoan, for example, the lack of job opportunities, the levels of gratuitous crime in our country in terms of the violence that accompanies it, both the crime and the gratuitous violence, that is, mm. in equity and how that correlates with gratuitous violence. And we can rattle off all of those things. And yet things are far worse than that. Mm. And the question is no longer is south africa a society in which corruption is rife have we downgraded from state capture back to mere corruption yeah. which is i think on an analytical level what people probably imagine zuma versus ramaphosa is about mm-hmm. they might concede some of the things we're talking about in our description of the status quo and say yeah but the worst then you see this this current situation would be to go back to full full-scale state capture mm-hmm. There's problems in the status quo, but now we have garden variety corruption, maybe a little bit of yeah. indecision around getting rid of people that he shouldn't have kept on, but we don't have state capture mm-hmm. in the way in which state capture had been theorized, you know, as this grand project of repurposing the state in order to benefit from corruption into perpetuity. That kind of thing no longer happens. Mm-hmm. Actually, I would challenge someone who holds that optimistic view about the status quo and say, that if anything, and a couple of colonists have raised this, mm-hmm. but it hasn't really gone viral, the question to be asked is, are we morphing into a gangster state mm-hmm. that is similar to some countries in, for example, South America? You know, I think one of the interesting things about your public voice, and it's, it's, it's quite rare, funnily enough, is there aren't a lot of people who have called for Zuma's resignation and Ramaphosa's resignation. Mm. There are those who've called rightly, in my view, um, and, and I want to make this clear because the minute you start criticizing the president, people say that you're mm. trying to defend mm. the Zuma era <laughs> or you're pursuing David Mabuza's agenda. Yeah. Um, I think you and I have been very clear about the disastrous Zuma tenure, and we both called for his resignation. So there are people, but there are people who didn't call for Zuma's resignation, 
who are now calling for Ramaphosa's resignation, which is also disingenuous. Yes. They were willing to overlook the Nkandla Constitutional yeah. Court judgment. They were willing to overlook an infinity of, of uh, errors mm. and suddenly are now prepared to pounce on Ramaphosa. But the fact of the matter is that, that our position is the right one, isn't it? It's that, that both of them have done things which, which require their resignation. And it's completely inconsistent to require one to resign and not the other. Whichever that yeah. one is. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think the only only thing one can debate, and, and I don't know how much time we want to spend on this question, is, of course, the reality that um, our leadership choices in terms of the pipeline are horrible because we have not yet had an excellent leader as head of state. They've all been flawed in all sorts of ways. And I think we should have a full-fledged public debate around the question given inherent human fallibility, what is the best we can hope for and what are we looking for? If you look at everyone who's nominated to potentially be on the NEC of the ANC, for example, mm. or if you look inside the EFF or inside the DA, what does talent mean in the context of Im imperfection? Because you're not gonna get someone who comes, comes along, which is what a lot of people assumed after Masrec 2017, as he might be a little bit boring, maybe the odd searing speech now and then, if we're lucky, but he's going to be the, the president who's going to be the technocrat and really turn around the state of the state. Yeah. And it's turned out that he's not the technocrat, that he's actually been allowing himself to be a continuation of the previous guy. Mm. So I do think consistency is important, you know, and where I sometimes self-examine, but maybe I haven't spent enough time ruminating on this, is in terms of ideal theory, um, if, we want, if we were consistently applying these norms of what's acceptable behavior, mm. um, I wonder whether we will get a president that will complete a term without at some point falling foul of, of these norms. Mm. But my, and so I haven't settled it for myself. But in some of my debates, the reason I'm, I'm pushing that, that viewpoint anyway mm. is that I think what we should guard against is, is setting our standards too low yeah. Yeah. and our expectations too low, even below the normative vision of the Constitution. Yeah. And in addition to setting our standards too low, the other thing we need to guard against is being fatalistic and say, oh, well, it's just the way things are. It's a fair company. Mm. We are destined to have these horrible people um, and someone said to me on Facebook yesterday you keep talking about ethics and ethical norms and standards it's not going to happen dude it's like water and oil when it comes to politics mm. but I said to him this is exactly the kind of thing that plays into the hands of the thugs yeah. they love it when we give up on demanding yeah. ethical decency in our politics and so there's part of me that thinks if you if your your bar is this high you will be perpetually putting people on trial for mm. potential impeachment. Mm -hmm. And then there's another part of me that thinks you've got to push back against even the reasonable disenchantment yeah. of the average Joe by reminding them there's nothing that a criminal likes more than you giving up on them being held accountable. Mm. And then they can just steal into perpetuity. That's, you know, I think continuing on this theme of what would happen if Ramaphosa resigns, right? And we've so far been quite generous in, in 
in saying to maybe the other side of that argument, okay, there will be some some drawbacks. Right? Yeah. Let me let me come with a different perspective, mm-hmm. right? What if it's better, right? And for the following reason, one of my main problems with the Ramaphosa presidency doesn't necessarily relate so much to Ramaphosa and his misconduct, but it's the role he plays in insulating the ANC government from true scrutiny and accountability. Yes. So his position as media darling, yes, which is fast vanishing, but but that position of, of assumed credibility shields the ANC from the real scrutiny that it deserves. Absolutely. And so when that veneer of credibility is finally removed, then we get to see the ANC for what it really <laughs> is. And is, is this living in willful ignorance when the country is crumbling better than actually reckoning with the true state of the ANC? I think that's a very important position to posit. I had this discussion last night with, with a very good friend of mine who's also a broadcaster and she said you know what I don't know how I feel about this Eusebius I mean such like so many different spaces because quite frankly it's not that I think Romaposa is perfect or anything mm. but if I'm honest with myself I get far more annoyed by um, Julius Malema or by John Steenhuisen than, mm. than this guy and so on the one hand there's that part of me that kind of doesn't want to see him fall and then there's another part of me she says which is to your point mm. that thinks what might be great about him being cliffed or cliffing himself yeah. is that it will it will hasten the demise of the ANC and then she says which I do want to see mm. <laughs> right? so that might be a good thing for the country so we get out of the one party dominance and this idea that but for the ANC the country is going to implode as if the ANC has delivered a better life for all which it never did mm. um, and it and it pretends that, it, that it's doing so and that it can re- renew itself yeah. so there is the possibility that we get on with what we at a psychopolitical level, don't allow ourselves to do, yeah. which is to take a chance on both imagining and going from imagining to actually taking the steps to realizing life without the ANC. Yeah. But to put it even more bluntly, and this is another conversation I had with, with, with a friend of mine, yeah. Mr. Ramaphosa has been, in the imagination of especially white people, a sort of Mandela 2.0. And so part of his likability including for black people, but for different constituencies, the likability comes in all sorts of ways. Mm. You know, for some, not all, some black middle class people, he sounds like one of us, you know, he's, he can be in this conversation, dulcet tones, we don't have to worry about whether he will know to use the cutlery from inside back in when he sits next to, to Charles, mm. um, because he's one of us. Whereas there's a kind of like, as Kolele um, Mangu said, a kind of aesthetic revulsion the middle classes have towards President um, Jacob Zuma, mm-hmm. right? So there's that likability. And then for many yeah. white South Africans who, who, who hark back to the 90s and the, we've just managed to avert civil war moment mm-hmm. and we're mm-hmm. so grateful. Of course, the image of Rolf Meir and, and Mandela 2.0 is stuck on their brains. Mm-hmm. And um, that stops us from being completely clinical and unromantic in beginning the process of imagining life without the ANC yeah. so that we can actually take it seriously as a near future rather than as a distant future possibility. Mm-hmm. And if he was out of the way, 
we need to trust ourselves. In a sense, the fear is an unnecessary degree of not trusting ourselves as a collective. As if we need the ANC, even though we've got evidence that the ANC is not useful to us collectively. But if it's out of the way, what you are talking about at a psychopolitical level may be very important. And I dare say, I mean, this is me trying to be nice to ANC people that are their bloods would be boiling as they watch this part of our conversation. Yeah, well, that's, that's but I, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's going to happen anyway. Yeah. You know, I'm sure the comment sections are hot. Oh, yes. But I dare say it will even grant the possibility for the ANC to more seriously think about redirecting itself because it will only do so when it no longer feels that it is guaranteed mm-hmm. political power. Yeah, I think, I think that's, I mean... I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so enjoying finally having the opportunity to actually think through this and talk through this. And just finally, because I want to come to the report, because I think he's got interesting mm. things to say about the report itself, mm. what it means in this moment. So that'll be the next kind of set of questions we delve into. But okay. finally, on this question of the president's resignation, whether it's wise, whether it's unwise, whether mm. it will implode the country or not, and whether he should resign or not. There's a certain powerlessness as well, which I think picks up on your previous point in the discourse about if Ramaphosa goes and we are suddenly subject to some parasitic faction of the ANC, mm. which assumes that we can do nothing, mm. Mm. that we, we wouldn't stand up, we wouldn't protest, we wouldn't use legal avenues, that finally journalism would actually get more serious about holding presidential power accountable again. Mm. So this idea that, well, we're just at the whim of the ANC, I think also undervalues and undermines the public's ability to cry out. Mm. Let's say David Mabuza takes over tomorrow and does something obviously corrupt or points someone obviously wrong. We have the power to stand up, to challenge that. And so this idea that we as a South African citizen, we are just going to be um, beholden totally to whoever takes over is also needs, I think, to be questioned. Yeah, and I want to say two things to that. I want to come back to a concept that I landed but didn't unpack earlier. Without being too theoretical, when I say the possibility of a gangster state should be taken seriously, the political scientists who are watching will be able to do a better job than me at putting bones to the theoretical elements of the conversation. The idea of a democratic state morphing into a corrupt state, morphing into a state that has been captured, morphing into a gangster state, Mm -hmm. those are very different degrees of harm in terms of what the state looks like and what it does to the citizens of that society. And in a gangster state, in particular, there are certain red flags where you now realize not only do you get a service provider inflating an invoice, which would be corruption, or state capture, where I'm grooming the CEO of Telcom and falsely pretending that it needs a fundamental overall that is worse than corruption. I'm repurposing the entire edifice. In a gangster state, we get different kinds of things organized criminality that is just on fleek your child suddenly being stolen on their way to school and someone wanting ransom for it 
suddenly having crime intelligence within the SEPs being used to spy on citizens and factions of the party. And you think of, in the imagination, even though stereotyping of sort of the political class, you might think of a society like, say, Colombia, um, and you literally have gangsterism as you have in the Cape Flats, scaled up on a different level within different parts of the state and in our communities. And when you have, for example, in the SAPs, someone that is able to make sure that guns are stolen and then sold on to gangs across the country, then you begin to show the elements of a gangster state and worse. And we can put more um, sort of, you know, put more flesh to, to the bones on that concept. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm saying that is because when we talk about us being scared of how the country might implode without the ANC and without Ramaphosa's ANC, we don't realize how much of our worst fears are beginning to play out under the status quo. It's just that some of the journalists who do excellent work on this, like Karen, for example, um, what's her name, surname now, she'll, she'll forgive me, um, who's written books about, for example, Long Street in Cape Town, where you and I go as revelers, Matrix are about to go and have their parties there, and the bouncers are not just scary folks keeping you out, there's connections between what happens in Paulsmoor, um, forcing the owners of those clubs to pay money. If they don't, then you scare them because you might have all sorts of, you know, sort of keep killing and scaring them and intimidating them to, to pay for money because that's your turf. And a lot of those clubs become places through which drug cartels are able to get drugs that come from other parts of the world to the final consumer that may be young people or who are out there. Um, you know, sort of just doing their thing. And the point that I'm trying to make is that beneath the surface of everyday South African life, there is an undergird that is very unstable and that exhibits elements of what you would find in countries that we typically think we could never become. Forget Zim. We're now talking about certain, I'm not saying all, certain features of, let's say, Somalia, or certain features of Colombia and other parts of, of South America and Central America. Mm. That's already in the status quo. So when we, comes to mind. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so when <coughs> we say, you know, be careful what you wish for, Eusebius, it's better to know, to, 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 to be with a, the, the scoundrel that you know than the ones that you don't know. Um, Didi is not doing much at the moment and is not the president. And those structural elements and the, the sliding away from state capture towards a gangster state is happening under the leadership of President um, Cyril Ramaphosa. And so the country needs to really reckon with their fears mm -hmm. because your worst fears are actually playing out currently, mm -hmm. but it's not being mainstreamed. And unless you know the work of an, a reporter or investigative reporter who's very humble and doesn't center themselves on social media, 
or the editors don't put their work on the front page because we put political personalities on the front page but you've got to go to page seven to really understand let's say for example the links between paul's Moore and gangsterism and aldo's and what might happen in clubs in melville you don't see those connections because we also make strange editorial decisions about what to center but those aspects of life in south africa is pretty scary and it's part of our reality already now just to to end it by by then reflecting on what are the implications for trusting ourselves mm. firstly it can't get too much worse if you know the full truth of what's happening currently and i think many people don't including the ones who think that they moan too much mm. even people who think they moan too much actually don't realize how many more reasons empirically they have to moan much more than they, they are mm. but then secondly as you say just as black south africans to take a optimistic positive example were able to form street committees to fight the nets in the 80s and then turn them also into scaffolding each other positively with black consciousness i think of places like king is london where you've got clinics that support each other and you take the same structures that are anti-apartheid structures that are meant to to help the liberation movements to fight the nets but you can also simultaneously use them as a form of self-affirmation and making sure that in those communities you are scaffolding each other materially, you're looking after each other, you create clinics and that kind of thing. In other words, we were resourceful and thriving, not quite thriving, but we were resourceful yeah. under conditions of that extremity. Mm. And so we've got to remind ourselves of our capacity to survive and to keep our humanity intact despite apartheid conditions and as much as i can diss the anc for hours yeah, sure. we we're not literally the apartheid state um there's elements of, of continuity as your book explores but we're not quite literally the apartheid state and yeah. so we, we really should trust ourselves to have the collective capacity to survive any anc mm. whether it's a dd anc or a ramaphosa anc yeah and, and, and on that, uh, I keep wanting to go to the report, but then you keep saying interesting We should things. go to the report, because <laughs> I think some people are trivializing the report. Yeah, and in a sense, our, I've loved the conversation so far. I think yeah, it's a yeah. full meal. But in a sense, um, we are taking for granted that many people watching, I guess, understand how serious the report is. But in case there's a skeptic mm. or a super fan of the president's, we probably should at some point. Yeah rehearse why the report okay. is important despite the label preliminary definitely definitely um the interesting thing you said um before we get to the report this episode is going to be called before we get to the report. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, yeah this this idea again that there's going to be some massive implosion state capture takes time Mm. even at the height of the worst interpretation of state capture you would say that really came in in at least the second term of, of president zuma right so you don't just wake up one day and capture the state right and we've got an election that's 20 months away i'm not even convinced that it would be possible to truly fully capture the state in a worse way than we've already seen in 20 months 
when the ANC sure. has a lower parliamentary majority than they had then. Yeah. So, so once yeah. again, just like this idea that there's going to be an imminent crisis. Well, so how exactly are you going to like, you have to yeah. appoint thousands of people to yeah. do that. And it's not clear to me that that's even possible. I think that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and I think that's, that, that's, it's important to be that commonsensical yeah. about it. The only way you can do it is to be quite literally brazen. Yeah. yeah. The kind of brazenness that's, you know, the political equivalent of the July riots. But like you said, if it gets that brazen, yeah. then we will just have a popular uprising. Exactly. And I, I don't think it will get that brazen. And so actually what we might see if Ramaphosa resigns is actually just continuity. Yeah. It'll be and importantly, importantly, Caesar. Before we get to the report, <laughs> if he doesn't resign, yeah. we're going to see the, the the continuity anyway. And I hope, if nothing else, that the public wrestles in this conversation with: if he doesn't resign, mm-hmm. can we unknow what we now know mm-hmm. about how truly bad the status quo is? Mm-hmm. Because that's also important. Yeah. So even if he doesn't resign, and he's persuaded to to stay on, mm-hmm. our people have a deeper understanding of the Malays. Than, than before. Previously, we would have said gangsterism is a problem, high unemployment is a problem. Mm-hmm. In general, you know, house invasions are horrible, the rape volume is, is, is horrible. All of those things on their own are horrible features of our society. Yeah. But the other little things are not so little, like organized crime yeah. and features of a gangster state. Linda Wey Mazipuko asked a good question around that in a Sunday Times column a couple of weeks ago. And even one or two ANC cadres, because you know they typically find their backbone when they're no longer in government, mm-hmm. have written around this. What are the, the elements of a society that is sliding mm-hmm. from a democratic state into one that is becoming fascistic? Mm-hmm. And, and then you can also say, what are the red flags? Because it's not like someone comes along and says, yeah. let me hit this button. From tomorrow, mm-hmm. you're going to be Zim 2000. Mm-hmm. You've got to look out for red flags. And even ANC elders who are no longer interested in governance suddenly realize that those red flags are many. Yeah. And so if the president has not resigned, this is not an episode about his post-mortem. Mm-hmm. It's still important to ask yourself as a Democrat, how do I feel about a country that has got these obvious elements that I know, but also these other features that have now been brought to my attention? And what will that do to me from a political point of view as I think about my vote in 2024? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, let's get to the report. (laughs) And, you know, this is, we've both read the report. And again, I've been looking for someone to really delve into this report, because I think there's so much, both about what this report represents for our country's history, legally and politically. And I guess one interesting place to start would be contextualizing the aim of this report. I think one of the big debates Mm. that has arisen is to what extent do these findings confirm liability or guilt? Uh, To what extent do words like may um, actually give the president wiggle room? To what extent does a prima facie or on the face of it finding actually water down a finding? And I think let's let's start there because there's a lot to be said about what this report actually is and isn't. You know, as a, as a commentator, I sometimes have my most fun conversations, other than with someone like you domestically, with foreign correspondents. Because when you explain South Africa to an international audience, you are compelled to be a little bit more systematic and to be clearer in a way in which you sometimes skimp over 
on South African TV because you make assumptions about shared understanding and knowledge. And, and yet you, you then end up seeing people disagreeing in all sorts of unnecessary ways, verbal disagreements that shouldn't be real disagreements, just because we haven't done the basics around definitions, for example. Yeah. You know? um, and as I said to you off air, um, I had a wonderful conversation with an American journalist last night and she asked me such basic questions mm. that I thought this is such great prep for my own work over the next few days, including this conversation, yeah. because it kind of forces you to take two, three steps back because you now need to describe the basics before you get to the report yeah. um, to, to, to an American audience, for example, or a British audience. There's a three-step process by which a president can be successfully impeached. The reason why the possibility of impeachment exists, which you also explained very well in your Mail and Guardian article, is that the president is gifted with enormous constitutional power, and rightly so. We don't have a presidential system like in the USA, but we do have a system that allows the president, for example, to make appointments as an executive authority about who constitutes his cabinet, who the DGs are, and those in turn are positions with enormous powers mm. as well, adjacent to his powers, that affect policy making and implementation and ultimately the quality of lives of millions of citizens. And we recognize, for better or worse, or not recognize, we, we have a notion the world over that you need a leader. And we don't have flat structures in political systems the world over. But what we try to do is to say, because human beings are fallible, what will we do if Mandela suddenly became a dictator? And so we design accountability mechanisms so that the enormous power we give you to have the freedom to enact your vision that you had successfully sold um, on your way to victory in the elections, so that we can rein you in if you have a bad day at the office or if you become the, a person we never knew you would become. Mm -hmm. And there are many accountability mechanisms. Most famously, South Africans will go to Chapter 9 of the Constitution, which have a bunch of extra-parliamentary or non-parliamentary mechanisms to ensure accountability. In other words, holding those who exercise public power accountable for how they do so. The public protectors become the most famous one. Um, but there are others in that chapter. And then you have other kinds of accountability. The judiciary acts as accountability. Parliament acts as, a, as an important oversight of the government. And of course, commentators, the media, and the public at large. And I suppose at the most basic level, the vote itself is a form of accountability. But impeachment says you can't wait necessarily five years before getting rid of someone who is guilty of serious misconduct or is no longer capable of being president. Um, or who has trampled and seriously violated certain statutes, including the Constitution as the most important basic law of the country. And then it designs a process to test whether such a violation has happened, where there's an allegation as such. And what we don't want is a president to be spuriously called to Parliament to come and account for something they have not done wrong. And so with a little bit of case law 
we try and figure out the meaning of the constitution and we build on it and to oversimplify but not too much the way the independent panel comes about is that its point is to help parliament to not waste time so it exists to say to parliament go ahead and have a full-fledged process where you set up a committee that has got enormous power including public hearings if it so feels it needs it can ask for submissions it can hear oral testimony and really in a very rigorous manner test the veracity of claims about a president allegedly having committed a serious misconduct um, or some kind of offense that goes against the constitution or other sources of law and so it is not an unimportant and trivial part of the three-step process the third part would be then voting on what the parliamentary impeachment committee had done but this first step is to make sure that you don't have nonsense going to parliament but it's limited because they don't call witnesses by way of example if they don't have all the submissions of documents that could have helped them to analyze the text before them most fully and most rigorously that's a limitation too but here's the danger Caesar and I'll pause after this just because that is step one and it plays a kind of filtering role to make sure that we don't waste time with a full-fledged committee if there isn't a case to answer doesn't mean that its findings should be regarded as not significant and not the basis for potential ethical and political consequences already in the same way in which we say I've watched nine hours of live TV of the state capture commission I don't need to wait for them to write up the reports or the NPA to have a charge sheet ready that it can now take to court to try and find this person or that person can be guilty of a crime I've made up my mind as an intelligent citizen what I've heard here is enough for me to make a judgment call about this person's bona fides their integrity etc and that's legit it doesn't mean that you're engaging in something that's anti-intellectual it doesn't mean that you've lowered the bar criminal law standards exist for all sorts of reasons that you and I can philosophically talk about that are important but if there's a common sense set of judgments that I can make based on what is here then you don't need step two before you can make up your mind then in fact in some circumstances I would say you're being lazy and you are being irresponsible to not see things plainly if they are plain after five minutes of interrogating you and what this committee has said is we don't make definitive factual findings because we don't have the same enormous more expansive powers that a parliamentary committee would have but then justice Nobo says my goodness based on just what we have he's got a case to answer we don't know how this money came in it seriously looks as if this wasn't a genuine business transaction mm. and on his own version and you know with many lawyers in your life and that you know and, and your own interest in the law mm. there's nothing worse for the other side than when a sentence starts off with the words on the other side's own version <laughs> they're in trouble you know the same in competitive debating um, on the version of the president that he has now given because this the, the other beautiful thing about step one is that for the first time we know the president's version because until now he's been mum mm. and on his own version 
He acknowledges the theft happened. Because remember, some of us didn't believe Arthur. Mm. The president could have denied theft happened. But now he concedes it. Yeah. And we almost forget how significant it is that he has officially agreed that it happened. Mm. But as soon as he agrees that it happened and he says that it happened, which he does, yeah. then immediately it raises questions such as, why didn't you report it immediately? Mm. Why didn't you tell the nation about it? Why didn't you tell the nation about back it? Then, not right, as a matter of transparency. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly other questions raise themselves. The dude is a businessman, but he told us that he's not a businessman. Mm. And he told us about a blind trust. Mm. And okay, if there's a close corporation, what what in business law, it turns out that he's the only person there anyway. So you must be operationally involved. And on his version, this person that I think will take the fall, that is one of the two managers, there's the one guy with a weird English name, and then there's a black dude involved. Yeah. They had a conversation. The first thing I find weird, by the way, is the idea that a safe is not safe, and that a couch is more <laughs> safe than a safe. Like, yeah. like that is just weird. Okay, can I <laughs> so like, the case, yeah. you know, so, so it's almost, a, it's one of those cases where you go, okay, I've heard enough, you know, this is over. We are casting you for the role or one of those cases i've heard enough this guy's guilty we don't need to continue with the trial so we can go through the rest of the process but you've got to be really disingenuous as a super ramaphosa fan to pretend that only until step two is done are we allowed to have an opinion no absolutely and and i i want to actually go into each of those things you've spoken about because each of them is fascinating in its own right hmm. I want to start with this idea of the standard yeah. for whether something is definitive mm. versus the standard of whether something is persuasive mm. and put that up against the standard of presidential conduct and what the minimum standard of presidential conduct is. Sure. Because there are two questions for me as, as, we, as we untangle this, right? There's there's whether something is conclusive proof for something mm. like criminal liability mm. but the standard for presidential conduct is not criminal mm. uh, for the standard for presidential credibility is lower than criminality yes right. so so there's an interesting interplay here on the one hand a standard of proof but on the other hand a standard of credibility and and people are disagreeing on both of those things right so for me mm. There's, the standard in this panel is really interesting, mm. right? Because on the one hand, it's, it's not just like the NPA saying we're going to, we think there's a case here, right? Because that could be a case for anything. Yeah. We think there's a case for a trivial yes. uh, theft of a suite from a supermarket, mm. right? The standard is, it's not conclusive, but it's serious. Yeah. So there's a kind of double thing happening there where... Yeah. On the one hand, it's not definitive, but on the other hand, it has to be a serious thing. Yeah. So when you say, I think there may be something serious, you're actually saying more than just, I think there may be something there. You're saying, I think there may be something there that's actually impeachable. That is so crucial. That is so crucial. Yeah. And that's what happens when people do not read every single word in a sentence or cherry pick the part of the sentence that is useful to them. Absolutely. They did not say we think mm. there's possible wrong. Yeah. The, they clear that there's wrong. Yeah. They think there's possibly something seriously wrong. Yeah. Because remember, they want to be helpful to Parliament. Mm. And Parliament doesn't want to know whether you think there's something wrong. They want to know whether you think there's something seriously wrong yeah. because that's the language relevant 
for potential impeachment. But I want to add something else and Mm. and I see whether I can explain it without losing the public. Mm. When we say you don't need criminal law standards, some people might think you guys are deliberately trying to lower the bar for for wrongdoing Mm. because you are empty Ramaphosa. Mm. Let's say people think that. Actually, what we are saying, I think we're both saying this, is that on some issues, we actually want a higher bar than the legal bar. The bar for for credibility, which is a political judgment, I think should actually be higher than legal standards. So I'm not saying um, throw away legal standards and let's find someone guilty quickly. I'm actually saying sometimes the law doesn't even give us high enough standards. Mm -hmm. Because even if the president were to be not guilty on Mm -hmm. criminal law standards on some of the claims made about him, there are some things that he will never be able to overcome in terms of political credibility. For example, why did you not take the nation into account, into into your confidence? Why did you mislead parliament by pretending you're not involved in a business? And when you talk about a blind trust, you know we reasonably assume that your full-time job and your only job from now until you leave government yeah. is to be head of state. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, you're busy with... <laughs> literally. This, literally. Literally back at the ranch. Back at the ranch, <laughs> quite, quite literally, right? And there, I'm not interested in legal questions. And this is where LLB Twitter will tie itself in all sorts of unnecessary knots. Yeah. There are non-legal questions that are very serious and even if they don't go to the legal standards for impeachment, should still potentially be the demise of this guy. In the same way in which um, you may get into legal trouble for violating COVID laws that you have enacted yeah, as, sure. as Boris Johnson. But, but, but let's imagine it wasn't against regulations to have a party. Mm. We might decide as a matter of political culture hypocrisy of that kind is a good enough reason to demand you to resign. Mm. How the hell can you have a party when I can't go to the funeral of my aunt? Yeah. When, when that question was put to Boris Johnson, it wasn't framed in legalistic terms, even though mm. there was some interest in will the police or not see this as something that's worthy of a fine. There was a legal element to it. But the fundamental national conversation in the UK was, mm. you darn hypocrite. Mm. And the notion of political hypocrisy there mm. is a non-legal notion. So I really hope that even though you're right, we can stay with these different aspects. Yeah. We'll come back to more of them. Sure. That is legalistic. Mm. I'm always simultaneously as a political animal interested in very important non-legal questions. Absolutely. And I think the president understands that funny enough. I think part yeah. of his shame that he's busy internalizing dealing with right now yeah. is because he knows that regardless the minutiae around the legal stuff which is interesting and important his political credibility quite apart from his ethical stance Mm. have been massively found wanting Mm. Mm. and dented and it seems that there are two there are two streams yeah of of conduct that that are under the microscope right so there's whether he acted in violation of the constitution and then there's whether there was criminal misconduct or some breach of criminal laws. And one of the things, again, that I don't think people have appreciated is that 
the panel could have come back and said, well, we think constitutionally he's violated in a potentially serious way, but on this criminal law stuff, we're reaching. Mm. Or they could have said, there seem to be criminal breaches, but quite frankly, constitutionally, there's no serious violation. Mm. Instead, the panel, and, and we're not talking about first-year law students here, or even you know, people who have had their LLBs. We're talking about a former chief justice, mm. a, for, a, a judge and a senior advocate who look at the conduct, who look at the president's version and say, not only is there a potential serious violation of the constitution, there's also a potential serious violation of criminal law. So yeah. both of those things are now uh, at play. And yeah. either one of them is potentially uh, irredeemable. And I want to connect it to what I was saying about organized crime and morphing towards a gangster state. So true. Actually. One of the things that mm. is causing, ironically enough, under the status quo, not under Didi's leadership, mm under Mr. Ramaphosa's leadership that is causing us a massive headache at the moment are perceptions that South Africa has got porous digital borders mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a wonderful place through which you can flow um, illicit money. Mm -hmm. And the questions are then asked, what's happened to our ability in terms of the various regulatory structures that we have in place to be able to get back to a country that has a reputation for excellent oversight in terms of financial institutions being able to monitor money that come in and out of the country and to be able to nip in the bud people who think that we are an easy and a safe haven for criminality mm -hmm. when it comes to economic crimes and organized criminality in particular mm -hmm. in turn you answer that question by asking yourself how effective are laws such as a statute that is designed um, to combat and to prevent that kind of economic crime sure and if the president can't account, which, and here we've got to be agnostic rather than definitive, sure. but it can't, has not yet accounted factually mm. where this money came from and how it came into the country, why it wasn't reported to SARS if it wasn't reported, mm. why didn't you bank it, mm. why did you stuff it into the couch? This is exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to prevent happening on a large scale, mm. and we're beginning to gain a reputation internationally for apparently not being able to nip this kind of thing in the bud. Mm. And then your president becomes Exhibit A. Can I, can I also just, on, on some of the factual things which you've alluded to, right? And, and one thing that you said that's really important that again, I think people need to appreciate is that it may be true that the independent panel has not come to a definite, and, and couldn't, is not designed to come to a definitive finding. But on some of these claims, one would have thought it would be really easy to rebut or refute a claim. Or right. to fill out a missing link. Exactly. Like how do them, yeah, why, yeah. why is this question not answered Caesar, yeah. by, by him voluntarily yeah. in his submission? How did the money come into yeah, the country? Exactly. That's so, like you don't need to have a criminal trial no. or of witnesses or anything to just say, this is how it came into the country. He has the record, and it was for a completely innocent pur uh, purpose. What a, what, a, what a funny situation we're in. Yes. When you can't convince people about basic factual questions, then it's not, um, you're not rushing 
if you start having even deeper doubts about what's going on here. Absolutely. Right? Because Absolutely. And, and for me, we, I mean, everything is just eye-popping in this report. Um, and, and, and the report left away, left aside so many things. It left aside tax things. It left aside a lot of reserve yes, bank things, yeah. which in themselves yeah. could be interesting. But when, the re when these, these independent panelists can't even verify, and the president couldn't even convince them that there actually was a game sale here, and, and he couldn't show that this is for buffaloes, and these buffaloes are still... These buffaloes are still at the farm. Why haven't they? And why haven't they left? Then unless, you, unless it was yeah. buffaloes, herbs, and spices. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, then you start wondering, hold on a second, what if this money did... And it's legitimate. In fact, the panel says we have substantial doubts that there was a... Then wait, where did the money come from? And then you start thinking, well, mm -hmm. we know that African leaders are often you know, when they resign or when, or when they're ousted from office, you find these dollars in their homes and that the trade in cash, mm -hmm. you know, is, is one way of, of, of just bribery. Yeah. Um, and then you start wondering, well, why was it in the sofa? And so, so actually the, the real question starts to emerge. Is there something here that is not even just a mistake, yeah. but that is actually Deeply, so, so I want to say two things about that. That's that, yeah. that I think is really important, and yeah, I disagree a little bit with 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 Pierre, um, who I otherwise constantly defend against his own trolls, mm. because I think he does an excellent job as a as an academic lawyer. The panel mm. goes through at the start the possibility that sometimes we can fall foul of the law accidentally yeah. and they then wrestle with the question and they reference yeah even though it was a in a minority um, report some very useful analysis from former chief justice mohuen on the question of what is bad faith mm. a bad faith error and then they give examples yeah. you know and they say well you know if you are my legal advisor and I'm president and you always give me advice that's pretty sound and you say you know yeah you, know, you can get this money just it's okay keep it at home mm. um, you can violate the law but not in bad faith sure you know but on the other hand if I say if I pick up the, the, the phone and I say Caesar as DG please get rid of Eusebius I want you to make sure that the MC that you hire for the next event is actually my cousin yeah I mean that that's a clear abuse of, of power mm. Because my intention there is, is obviously to, to, to get you to do something wrong. In other words, if you look at the facts of each particular case, mm. you can sometimes infer quite reasonably without trying to be too clever, sometimes through common sense and sometimes with a little bit more complexity, mm. whether or not, even whether where there's a violation, whether it's a good faith one or a bad faith one. And in this case, mm. unless the president tells us more, but even the fact that he didn't tell us already doesn't help him. Mm. It doesn't seem as if we can fill out in a way that is generous and helps him mm. the possibility that he couldn't have known, he didn't know. Because mm. the question then becomes, if it was supposed to be a good faith error that you did not make the tax authorities aware, you didn't go and bank it within the right amount of time, mm. well, how do you go to such lengths to ask the Namibian authorities to please handle this with, quote, 
you know, discretion or to be discreet about it. Yeah. Why do you not tell the nation about it? Why, this, why is there such a huge time lag um, until the point where you ask Ruida to fly back to the country to come and deal with this? And what Pierre misses is that's not enough to comply with reporting of the SEPs because when Ngobo listened more carefully, as a good jurist does, mm -hmm. you basically tell the guy to come back to you. Right, which m means that you are trying to control what happens to that investigation. Sure. And the point that I'm trying to make is that we can reasonably infer that there's mischief going on here mm. with this money situation because there are way too many improbabilities to arrive at the conclusion that any non-compliance with technical sources of law that none of us are familiar with, including the president, was just in you know, good faith non-compliance. I think it is unlikely. And I think the real truth about the money um, would probably be a massive embarrassment to the president and or the ANC. And I'll say no more than that. Mm. But I suspect that is the case. I suspect, I suspect there's something there. And frankly, if you are a Ramaphosa fan, I blame your guy for, for Cesar and I spending three minutes to puzzle through speculative political analysis mm. because not giving a frank version that fills out all of these questions factually yeah. makes you susceptible to exactly this kind of hypothesizing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm reminded of this, this anecdote in, ironically, um, President Obama's um, presidential memoir and he speaks about how he gets to Saudi Arabia and they have these meetings and um, bilateral conversations and they go back to their hotel rooms and laid out on a table are Rolexes and diamond necklaces and various um, you know, rare extremely rich um, and valuable items right, that are just casually left there. Um, and he, he thinks to himself, well, he, he, he knows and he laughs. He's like, obviously, firstly, this would be found if we took it. But secondly, it's against policy to take these things. But does every government not take these things? <laughs> and it just makes me worry and wonder, like, we have no idea what happens in the way that these things are exchanged between governments when trips to the Middle East are planned or, um, and, and cash is the way it happens. And so, I, again, I'm not saying that I know or I have proof or that there's evidence, um, let alone um, incontrovertible evidence. But the way the president is acting has not in any way been able to persuade me that there isn't some strange source of or origin. And, yeah. Sizwe, let's overlay that with domestic examples. Forget mm. about the intra, even mm. the, you know, sort of nefarious politicians yeah. helping each other out across borders. Mm. Jacques Poe reminds us, I might get the numbers wrong of the example, but let's go back to 2017. You'll remember the spurious um, claim that some of the intel some of the spooks were making uh, we're going to be in trouble. It seems as if there's some foreign spies coming mm. to Nazareth 
and we can't guarantee the safety of government ministers that will be in and out of the place. We need a new, new piece of equipment mm. um, and we need it quickly, like the grabber um, or, or something of that sort. And, um, you know, they then, because it's quick, you also then suddenly, and they love to, to pretend that there's an emergency that's imminent mm. because then you also flout regulations like, you know, the PFMA and other legislations around good governance and making sure that mm. you get at least three quotes, etc. It's a competitive bid. And um, firstly, um, they were lying. There was no real threat. Uh, the apparent threat was just a couple of tourists who were backpacking nearby, and they knew that. And secondly, um, whichever the, the civil servant was that was leading this spurious attempt to, to, to buy the grabber, then also in their haste to get it said, well, we've got to buy it from this service provider who actually had been banned from doing business with government because they'd previously done crappy business with government. And um, not only was the grabber something that no one could actually work with in intelligence, no one had the skill to be able to use mm -hmm. it. So you, so even if you wanted to use it as a device to keep, to help secure Nazareth, the skill set wasn't there. You know, it's like us getting a piece of equipment and we can't plug it into the wall yeah. because it's not compatible. But to make it worse, Israel, it also turned out if you do a quick Google search that the most high-end part of this equipment goes for something like about 5 million rand. Mm. But lo and behold, under this emergency transaction from this dodgy supplier that had previously been blacklisted, um, they invoice for about 45 million mm. or thereabouts, right? And nothing ever came of that. That happens in South African politics all the time. Now, what do you think actually happens? Now, here is a little bit speculative. But it's typical, there are many examples, even going back to, to Mangahung, yeah. where ANC leeches from the public purse mm. for internal ANC factional battles leaving, le leading up to elective conferences. Those kinds of money, as sources of money, go to buying votes for, from delegates, for example. Mm. And the ANC is aware of the nexus between money and elective conferences inside the ANC. Um, and and the idea that elective conferences are honest representations of what branches feel and that these representatives go to Jersey to go and simply represent the preferences of some ward in Makanda, that's absolute BS. But the way you persuade them is no longer just by giving them KFC um, and giving them a T-shirt. You might also, or airtime and data, you might also give them some cash. So they need to get, get cash somewhere. President Ramaphosa, and I'm not trying to, to come up with a conspiracy, mm -hmm. but President Ramaphosa, one of the things for him that might be a bad outcome, one of the many aspects of the bad outcome, mm -hmm. is that we might come to a pithy conclusion in the medium term that it turned out he was just another ANC president. Mm -hmm. And part of what it means to be just another ANC politician is that you are murdered in the connections between dirty money and internal ANC electioneering and careerism. And I think the question of where the money comes from and what its purpose was are the two most important questions in this query. And he's got a perverse incentive to resign, which is if you resign, you can also try and blunt an examination of those questions. Mm. A resignation you and I discussed earlier could be an act of honor to try and salvage yourself from the damning on the face of it findings of wrongdoing but it might also be a tactical selfish point to the resigning act 
which is to try and blunt the kind of chachrach questions that we've just framed. Because if it should turn out in one not improbable scenario that this money is yet another example that could be a chapter in a book about connections between dirty money and ANC electioneering, imagine what that does to the idea of him as Mandela 2.0. You see this, you've been very kind with your time. I'm going to ask one final question, lest we sit here. And then he resigns and we don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's just to reflect on this moment in terms of its significance for our history and democracy as a whole. It's hard to, it's, it's always hard to know from the present moment yeah. the significance of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, you know, when the Nkandla judgment came out, it wasn't actually clear at the time that this is going to be quite a watershed moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but this feels, this feels significant, no matter what the president decides to do. Um, something about this moment is, is important. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you reflect on that? I think it's always difficult to speak into as well as to write into the moment. Mm-hmm. I think some people have a great skill doing that, by the way, on all sorts of issues, um, from politics to sport to everyday life and mm-hmm. what, whatnot. So it is, it is quite difficult. And I can't do that expansively, but maybe let me say two things that are just top of mind as mm-hmm. you say that. One of the things you and I disagree with, and I, and I will put it playfully and reductively, I like our constitution a little bit more than, than you do. One of the things that's significant about this moment is that... I like it a lot right now. <laughs> <laughs> is that it is constitutionalism in action. Mm-hmm. And that's important in the same way in which, as I wrote in a piece for foreign policy, um, one of the things I did like about the Concord judgment against the former president mm-hmm. that led him to be incarcerated is it wasn't so much schadenfreude that he's incarcerated, but where in, in the global north do you find a democracy that is that robust, that does not only pay lip service mm-hmm. to the idea of constitutional supremacy and making sure that when we say parliamentary sovereignty is dead in 1994, yeah. that we don't sneak it in through the back door, right? So the idea of animating the constitution, which is the kind of language you know that is often used by Concord judges, mm-hmm. We, we're often lyrical about that, but then it depends on how that actually plays out. And if you have non-compliance with the judgment, yeah. then, it, then you don't have true animation of the text. And I feel like what we're going through here is a beautiful illustration of the importance of animating the constitutional text. But what I would say secondly, at the risk of undermining that, but I'll behave like an academic and say it's a point in tension, not a contradiction. <laughs> is I'm always reminded of the limitations of normative ideals because the Constitution, as you know, and here you and I have overlap. Mm -hmm. You can't eat it. It doesn't help a woman to be safer. It doesn't deal with anti-black racism and white supremacy. It is also, it's an important text, but it is at best a vision of our best possible selves but then there's a gap between that and reality and um, I think this moment is important in a more dystopian way because it reminds us of how the ANC has failed us even when it has given us their best their best 
in terms of singular leadership was Mandela and Becky for certain parts of the ANC. Those who thought aloofness is a deep political problem from a President Zuma would have been also part of the best in the Polokwane moment. And of course, ultimately, the mentee of Mandela coming back via Bloemfontein to Pretoria and Cape Town as president. And, and yet, what this moment has shown us is that you've got to be very careful to assume that if someone is excellent at one point in time in political history, like being chief negotiator for that constitutional text, that it means you can also trust them to be the one to embody that text. Eusebius, thanks so much for joining us on SMWX. We really appreciate your insights and time. Cheers. Ayeye, like, share, comment down below, and make sure you help us get to that 35,000 subscriber mark. See you on the next one. The Caesar Informed Welsh Experience Podcast. Ayeye, ayeye.